Right, good morning. What you have there is a slide of a birthday cake from the Harari Church of Christ. Uh, we got back from Harare early on in this week. It was the Southern African Annual Conference in Harare for the first time, and it was an amazing experience. It also coincided with the 30th anniversary of the church, and hence, hence the cake. I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures, and we'll share in more detail at midweek on Wednesday. You might uh, recognize some folk in front and at the left, at the back there. Scott Kirkpatrick in front, waving his hands from, from America. He gave one of the plenary lessons, really awesome. You might recognize the Tollivers there, those of you who have been around for a long time. And in the back you'll see Jarette, uh, Nolene and Omar. Uh, I was missing in action with this photo, I'm not sure where, where I was. Right? But uh, it was an amazing weekend. There were, I think, 21 classes, uh, four parallel sessions in a day and a half. Um, there were 26 churches from Southern Africa represented there. We had disciples from America, Europe, and one from Mexico. Right? Uh, but it was just an amazing experience, and uh, we'll be sharing a little bit more on, on Wednesday. Uh, as you can hear, my voice isn't so great. I'm actually feeling better than I sound, uh, so hopefully I will actually get through this, this sermon this morning. Uh, Dr. Shimwe she was at our place last night, and she offered to set up a drip for me. She said, Uncle Neil, I'll sort you out very quickly. So I thought of actually standing here with a drip on a stand, you know, sort of feeding into my artery, but I thought that might be a bit weird, right? That wouldn't work. Okay, so I, it was a good call I made this evening. Eh? Amen. Uh, so but briefly, my voice does, does hold. I actually don't feel as bad as I sound. That's just the way it happens with me. Okay. Um, sorry, there was one more photo I wanted to show. This is... Edwin Shumba, who is the leader of the Rari Church, at the service on Sunday, which was an awesome celebration service, he was also appointed as an evangelist by Duncan Comrade. In our church, we get very excited when people are formally recognized as evangelists or elders and teachers. Uh, so this was a very, very special moment. He's a special friend of ours, he and his wife, Christine, and we're just super excited for them. A really an incredible man of God, uh, one of the heroes in the faith, a very, very faithful man. So... Amen. That just made it extra, extra special. But we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts. Those of you who have been around will know that we've been in this for oh, more than six months now, I believe. And we're slowly wading through the book and learning a ton as we go along, I hope. Uh, last week, Jason spoke on Acts chapter 10. Jason did a great job reading through a very, very long chapter and drawing out important lessons for us. And just to paraphrase and summarize very quickly, we were introduced to a man called Cornelius, a centurion. He was God-fearing. He prayed and fasted regularly. He was very generous towards God's people. But he was not saved. And uh, he lived a very good life. He was in many ways religious, uh, but he was, he was not saved. He wasn't right with God. And what he required was for someone to bring the message to him, and that was Peter. He needed to humbly respond to the message. And we see that he responded through repentance and being baptized into the life of Christ. And then the last verse of the chapter tells us that he invited Peter and the people with him to stay with him. And that's such an important part of the conversion process as well. Now throughout the book of Acts, and for us as well, when we really get it, when we're placed in the life of Christ, we 
we long for and we, we create opportunities for fellowship and just being in God's community. Right? So that was also part of, of his real conversion and his change in his mindset that he just welcomed Peter into his, his home. So that's the one level at which we can read Acts chapter 10. But there's a lot more going on. This is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, I believe. Um, it's a monumental event in God's plan and his story, the inclusion of the Gentiles into his family. And that's going to be the focus today, and so my title is The Gentiles, a really big deal. And this is a really big deal for, for Peter as well. And some Bible commentators actually refer to chapter 10 as the conversion of Peter as much as it was the conversion of Cornelius. We'll see how Peter's mindset, his prejudices, his worldview is fundamentally challenged and changed. And that process really culminates in chapter 10, but it starts way back in Acts chapter 2. That's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna cover today. Now, I just want to point out also that we were briefly introduced to Paul in chapter 9. Uh, there we, we read it, we read about his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. So Paul's around for a little while, and then the focus, Luke, the author, shifts the focus from Paul back to Peter. Paul is lurking in the background, probably in Tarsus at this time, and he will reappear as the main character very soon. But for now, the focus is still on the apostle Paul. I'm oh, sorry, Peter. Now, Peter has a special commission from Jesus. All the apostles were commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. We read about that in Matthew 28. And then in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus explains how that will happen. He says it will start in Jerusalem and then it will extend to the, to the areas around Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then into the whole of the known, the, the whole of the rest of the, um, of the known world at the time. But in addition to that general commission of the disciples, P- Peter was given a special commission. And we read about that in Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus speaking to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And today we're going to trace how Peter carried out this special commission, and how he needed to be radically changed by God in order to do so. There are echoes of a passage in the Old Testament in, in this passage. And the Jewish hearers and the early Christians would certainly have noticed it. We find this in Isaiah 22. Now this is God speaking to his prophet Isaiah. And he is referring to the need for a change in a steward, a very important steward in Israel. And this was the guy who was basically, uh, he was a steward the caretaker, in a sense, of the king's palace. He had the keys. Okay, and the previous steward is Shebna. Shebna went on doing his own thing. He didn't obey God, so it's time to replace him. So God is now giving instructions. On that day, I will call for my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will put your authority into his hand, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. So I'm sure you see the similarities in these two passages. 
And then important, there are a few important, um, really points for us to take note of here. Now the palace administrator was a steward of the king. He was given authority over the rest of the household, but he was responsible to the king and to the king alone to administer the affairs properly. He was a steward. And the keys that are spoken of here are probably the keys to the storehouse. This is what respected Bible scholars believe. Um, It probably was the keys to the storehouse rather than the key to the main gate providing entry into the palace grounds. So, you know this picture we have of this portrayal of Peter at the pearly gates, you know, deciding who's going to get into heaven or not. Uh, it's based on this passage. It's actually incorrect. Bad exegesis. Okay, God hasn't given anybody the key to heaven. God alone decides that. He has already decided. He has already, you know, decided. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound. Okay, we can only, Peter could only do what God had already decided to do. He could only do what God, in a sense, had already done. Okay, Peter doesn't have the authority to let people into, into heaven yet. And also the fact that he has the keys to the storehouse is a picture of Peter releasing the provision of God. What is the, pre- the greatest provision of God nowadays we, we see with the, out, with the birth of the new church? The Holy Spirit. Okay, God's provision. With the Holy Spirit, his mercy and his grace and salvation. Essentially, it's a picture of Peter now having the keys of the storehouse of the king to release his blessings and his provision. And I believe especially his Holy Spirit. And we will see that uh, as, as we go through the story. So we, like Peter, have limited authority. It's important for us to recognize that. We have limited authority. We can't alter God's plan. God is committed to his plan. He's written us into the story. The story continues. The story ends well. But all we got, we need to live and walk in step with the Spirit and do things God's way, not to, not to take authority that we don't really have. Okay, so that's the picture we get from these um, passages. Now, the first key that Peter was asked by God to use to open the door was the key to the Jews. I can get my clicker. So he opens the door first for the Jews, and we read about that in Acts chapter 2. I don't have time to give the full background here, but the, the disciples are waiting for Jesus to send the Spirit which he has promised. And then at the right time, the Spirit comes, and this is what happens. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability to speak. Now this was a monumental event in the history of the world. This was the life-changing event apart from the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, we believe. This is the birth of the church. This is the start of the era in which we now live. Now the birth of the church. And it was accompanied by the generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, resulting in the disciples speaking in different languages so that all the Jews who were in Jerusalem from the surrounding nations for the festival could hear the gospel, the same gospel preached in exactly the same way in, in their language. Okay, so that happened on the day of Pentecost. This was an easy door for Peter to unlock. 
This was, in, this was absolutely aligned with his paradigm. Yes, you know, Israel is God's treasured possession. We have the blessings of God. This makes absolute sense to Peter that God would pour out his spirit and open the door of heaven to his people, the Jews. Now, after this, in the next few chapters, we read about the gospel spreading throughout Jerusalem. We read about resistance arising against the church. You know, the religious leaders are threatened by what's happening, all the conversions. And it culminates in the murder of Stephen, the first martyr. And the death of Stephen was the catalyst for a great persecution that broke out. The persecution forced disciples out of Jerusalem. They continued to proclaim the gospel into the surrounding area of Judea and later Samaria, as decided by Jesus in Acts 1, verse 8. Then in Acts 8, we read about Philip, just an amazing man, full of the Spirit, just an incredible example and role model of faith. We read about Philip proclaiming the gospel in Samaria, And we read about some people accepting the message and being baptized into Christ. Samaritans. Now the Jews, this news got back to the church leaders in Jerusalem and this is how they responded. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Let me just step back a little bit and remind you that the book of Acts is not written as doctrine. The book of Acts is an historical account of the early church. And we shouldn't get confused by the salvation process and wonder what comes first. Don't we get the Spirit when we baptize? That's not the point. God was making a point here, which I'm going to get to. Okay, so we mustn't read this as salvation. This is not normative for the church nowadays. It is simply descriptive of what happened. And God arranged this to happen in this order and in this way for a very, very good, good reason. Um, but let me just speak a little bit about the Samaritans. Now this was this was a hard key for Peter to turn in the door. You know, that the Samaritans would get God's blessing and provision, that the Samaritans could be saved. And you know, just a bit of background into what really shaped Peter's worldview and attitude. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews um, because they were half-breeds. After the Assyrian conquest of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel, Many Israelites were taken into Assyria and scattered around the, the world, known world at the time. The, the Syrians were also very clever. They sent people into, into the divided and conquered lands to interbreed. And they sent a group of a nation called the Kuthians to live in northern Israel, and the Jews living there intermarried with those people. In other words, they defied God's laws to keep themselves pure and separate from the nations around them, and so they were despised by the Jews. They were looked down by the Jews. And the rabbis even went so far as to command, Let no Jew eat of the bread of the Kuthians, the Samaritans, for he who eats the, their bread is as if he was eating swine's flesh. Okay, so the Samaritans, there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. No, but we see God is slowly breaking down Peter's well-entrenched prejudices. He's slowly breaking them down. Um, and Peter's, Peter's responding well. 
You get that? You can imagine what, a, what an incredible challenge this is for Peter. You know, to go to Samaria, to see these guys have genuinely, you know, confessed, repented, been baptized into Christ, and then they lay hands on them so that they can receive the Spirit. That's Jesus, that is Peter opening, opening the door. We read later on in the second half of uh, chapter 9, you know, Peter is traveling around the countryside, uh, he's healing, he raises a, um, a woman from the, from the dead, and then he stays in the coastal town of Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And we did discuss this, but just very briefly. Now, staying with Simon was a big deal. Although Simon was a Jew, uh, he was a tanner. And the Jews looked down on the tanners because they, they worked with dead animals. So they were, by definition, unclean. So for Peter to even stay with Simon was an amazing breakthrough for him. It, re- it was a removal of a barrier in his mind. I think by now Peter is realizing, you know, this when Jesus, the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, maybe Jesus actually meant that. You know, <laughs> maybe we are actually meant to share the gospel with all people and that this nation, this kingdom is actually a bit more colorful and complicated than, than I thought. So it's a great example of Peter. He's just, he's just accepting the challenges of God. He's walking a step with the Spirit. And he chooses obedience. So this was, this was a radical big deal. But God is not finished with him yet. The next test will confront his worldview to the core. And it's going to totally turn the worldview of Peter upside down. And we see that in chapter 10. Jay read this last week. I'm going to read a portion of the passage again, but just a little bit of background lead, leading up to this. In chapter 10, God calls on Peter to use his keys to open the door to the third group of people, the Gentiles. And this is a really, really big deal. If Samaritans were despised by the Jews, the Gentiles were double despised by the Jews. Bit of background again. The Gentiles were considered unclean. All Gentiles. Full stop. A strict Jew wouldn't be the guest in a Gentile's house nor would he have a Gentile guest in his house. The Gentiles, by their very nature and uncleanliness, brought uncleanliness and impurity into the house. Okay. Anything a Gentile touched was considered unclean. For example, milk that was drawn out of a cow by a Gentile was not allowed to be consumed by Jews, right, because their hands have touched the milk. If you wanted to buy milk in those days, you had to make sure that a Gentile didn't milk the cow. Um, bread prepared by a Gentile could never be used by a Jew. No Jew would eat with a Gentile. Table fellowship was reserved for fellow Jews. Table fellowship was a big thing. You only had a meal. You sat around the table and had a meal with your people, your tribe, your family. If eating utensils were brought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water. Any article that was in the hands of a Gentile at any time was unclean and needed to be purified. Even the dust from a Gentile country was considered defiled. Whenever a Jew left Israel to maybe do some business in a surrounding town, before he stepped back into Israel, he had to shake the dust off his feet so that he didn't bring the pollution of the Gentile country back into Israel. Let remind you guys of a passage. Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out the 70, 
And he said, you're going to come to some villages where people do not accept the gospel. There he says, shake the dust of your feet and go to the next village. What he was saying, and obviously in that, uh, this is what it was like, this is called Old Covenant. Jesus was saying, treat those people who reject me through the gospel, treat them as Gentiles. Have nothing to do with them. You know, the Jews had terrible prejudice against the Gentiles. They were, they hated the Gentiles. But the feeling was mutual. You know, the, the Gentiles had it in for the Jews as well. The Jews were the target of scorn and humor to the Gentiles. Circumcision, the Sabbath day rest, the worship of an invisible God couldn't be represented by an idol, the abstinence from certain foods, these strict dietary laws, um, they were considered a joke. You know, the Jews were source and target of many jokes. They just laughed at them, they dissed them, they wrote them off because these guys were just these guys were just crazy. They were mocked by the Gentiles. So in summary, there's no lost no love lost between the Jews and the Gentiles from both sides. Now, so for Peter to use his key to open the door of God's blessing and provision to the Gentiles was a really, really big deal. It was a massive barrier in his mind to overcome. It was a radical turn in his worldview. You know, it was such a big deal that it required God to get personally involved to prepare both Cornelius and Peter through his spirit. So God doesn't take anything. He puts nothing to chance here. This is such a critically important moment in God's story. He takes no chances. Now, the spirit prepares Cornelius. The spirit prepares Peter before they come together. Let's just pause on that point. That tells us a lot about how God works. Now, God is sovereign. Um, he controls things. He's working things out in the background all the time. We don't see it, but he's arranging times and places for us to meet. He's arranging people to come into your life and my life even now, right, to help us the way we need to be helped. Now, I remember that, you know, when I, before, long before I was saved, God sent people, people to Port Elizabeth that I needed to hear. It wasn't comfortable. You guys might know that my lovely wife, Nolene, was a disciple long before me. For seven years, I was a difficult guy. I know that's almost impossible to imagine, but I was arrogant, and you know, I, I needed some humbling. You know, I, really, I, I needed the right people. And if, if I look back and see the, the kind of men that God sent to me, there were four or five of them. And eventually he sent uh, Alex Crute, who was a no-nonsense CEO kind of guy, and he just told me what I needed here. God was working behind the scenes. And he's working behind the scenes always. God is committed to his story, his wonderful story of redemption and restoration. He doesn't leave it to chance. He doesn't leave it to mere mortals and sinful wretches like you and me to do that on our own. He gives us his spirit. Spirit energizes us. His spirit illuminates the scripture. The spirit brings about conviction. The spirit brings community. The spirit reminds us of scriptures and so on and so forth. So God is a sovereign God. He controls things. He doesn't leave important things like salvation to chance or to our mere efforts. But obviously, he calls us to partner with him, and we see Peter doing that. Okay, so just to remind you of what happened in Acts 10, uh, Cornelius has a vision. The angel tells him to send three men to Joppa, where Peter was. Peter was in Joppa, to come to him. And Cornelius obeys. Cornelius calls the guys together. He says, man, I've been told by God through his angel, you need to go to Joppa. Look for this guy, Peter. Send him to me. 
While they were on their journey, Peter has a vision. You know, while he's in the deep sleep, he has a vision of this great sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals in it. Animals which were considered unclean for Jews to eat. And in his vision, he hears a voice telling him to get up, to kill the animals, and to eat them. Peter, of course, replies, no ways, Lord, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything unclean. I, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do that, God. No, but the voice answered, do not call anything impure which God has made clean. This happens three times. And Peter then wakes up, wakes up and goes downstairs just as the three men from Cornelius arrive. Isn't that perfect timing? Now, God is clearly behind the scene. Just at just the right time, he puts Peter together with these three men from Cornelius. Now, by the way, isn't it interesting how the number three seems to follow Peter everywhere? Now, I'm just fascinated by this stuff. Now, Peter denied Jesus three times. When he was reinstated by Jesus, Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Three times. And here we have... Um, you know, God corrects him three times about the food, and three men are sent to him. Later, when Peter arrives at Cornelius, Cornelius starts off by explaining what happened by saying, three days ago, at three in the afternoon, a man appeared to him in a vision. I just find that fascinating. You know, you know the rule of threes we talk about in the church, Tourette? There we go, man. Peter understood the rule. God understood the rule of threes when it came to Peter for some reason. Maybe it just helps us to remember the story. I don't know. But going back to the men who visited Peter, how does Peter respond? He lets them into his house as guests. Wow. Do you know what a big thing that is? You know, to let these three men, representing a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a Roman occupier, Gentiles, full stop, allowing Gentiles into the home he was staying in. It wasn't his own, fair enough, but it was his space to let them into his home, to be his guests, which implies that he ate with them. This is a radically different Peter to what we saw in Acts 2. Now, I want to just explain the significance of the vision. The vision was more than just about food. It was a picture, actually, of table fellowship. And Peter would have understood it as that. He was saying it is okay to eat with the Gentiles. Now, the food of Gentiles was represented by all these animals, but it wasn't just eating the food. It was, it was really about having table fellowship with Gentiles, accepting the Gentiles, that they are, they are my people. Now, it is God's plan that, that we shouldn't be separated. It's God's plan to get rid of all the prejudices and divisions between us, to actually have table fellowship with them. So amazing changes happening in the mind, the mindset of Peter. And I was just thinking, do you sometimes think that God asks you to do or to change things that are too tough? Have you ever thought that, God, that I just can't change? That I just can't do? That, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. Well, I just want to say that there is nothing that God could possibly challenge us with to change that was tougher than what Peter was challenged to do. If we trust God and rely on the power of the Spirit, but faithfully obey God, He can bring about amazing changes in us. He can remove our prejudices. He can remove our fears. He can remove our lack of love for people. 
that God sends us to people, for example, just a direct analogy, to share the gospel with that person, that man or that woman, and we think somehow that that person doesn't deserve it, or that person has, is an enemy of mine historically, or that we just don't get on with those kinds of people. Or maybe we think that person is so evil, he's a Satan worshiper, God, surely I can't go and share the gospel with him. Nothing is too difficult for God. So, after meeting with Cornelius, Peter entered his house. That's another taboo right there, you know, being broken. And he says this in Acts 10 verse 34. And this represents an amazing, miraculous change in mindset and heart by Peter. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Right there we have a statement of theology, the nature of God, that is critically important for us to understand. God doesn't show favoritism. He accepts everybody who does what is right in accepting the salvation that God offers them. Peter then, uh, just to paraphrase, when he's with Cornelius and Cornelius' family and Cornelius' friends, there are quite a few of them in the house, um, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus. He explains, you know, the ministry of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He establishes Jesus as Lord. And he explains that there are many witnesses to the resurrection, including Peter himself. And we see that way of witnessing throughout Acts. That's typically the way it goes. They speak about, you know, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that they were witnesses to the resurrection. That is what brought about change. People understanding that the resurrection of Jesus established him as Savior and as Lord. And then uh, the punchline that God was preparing him for. We read this in Acts 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, important just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay for a few days. You know, so Peter took six Jewish men with him into the house, very smart, because later on he'd have to explain what happened to the, to the Jewish leaders, and he could say, man, these other six brothers were with me, ask them, okay? Um, and these other brothers were, the other Jews, the circumcised believers, were astounded. By this stage, I don't think Peter's astounded. He's like, oh, whatever, God, <laughs> nothing can surprise me now. You know, he's been prepared for this moment. It's not such a shock to Peter now that he needs to open the door to the Gentiles. Use the keys to open the door to the despised, hated Gentiles. Peter has been transformed, radically transformed in a way that you and I don't really grasp and understand. And we see the Holy Spirit was poured out on them in a very visible way as it was in Acts 2 and Acts 8 to the Samaritans, now to the, to the Jews. Um, and they, they are speaking in tongues, but let me ask you this then. I think I've just given the answer, but remember the three accounts. What was common in all of those three accounts? Peter was common. Okay, Peter was present in all of them because he had the keys. 
There were always other Jews with Peter. And the Holy Spirit was was poured out in a visible way. Now, in the account of the Samaritans, they don't specifically refer to speaking in tongues. And, amen, whether they did or not is not really the point. Maybe they didn't need to. Some Bible commentators think that the visible signs were, in fact, speaking in tongues. But we mustn't make these things about tongues. That's not the point. What Luke is explaining is that just like the Jews were introduced into the kingdom, the Samaritans and and the Gentiles will be introduced in the same way. Uh, You know, so as I said earlier, reading these passages and comparing them doesn't tell us that, you know, that there's inconsistency in how people are saved. That's not the point of Luke. He's not writing salvation doctrine here. Let's read the letters of Paul to find that out. He's explaining that God is treating other people exactly the same way as he treated Jews. And the the visible evidence of the Holy Spirit that we saw after it was poured out on the Jews in Acts, we see the same result with the Samaritans and the Gentiles. That's the point. Why did you might ask why did why did Peter need to be present? Why, why did he need to be present? And you know, I was thinking about this. An illustration to me would be: imagine you have an adopted child. And, you know, you have certain family traditions that when your children reach a certain age, you have a family tradition, some sort of right of entry into the family, and you've done that with your, you know, your, your own children. And then you have an adopted child. Imagine if you treated him differently. That you had the right of passage, but your physical children weren't there. You said, oh, you don't need to be here. It wouldn't be the same, would it? Now, your adopted child wants to be treated exactly the same as the others. It'll, it'll let him know that he's part of the family. And it's important for your other children to realize that this guy's been treated exactly the same. The rite of passage is the same. It creates one family. And the danger, if God had have done these things and, you know, had the Samaritans and the Gentiles enter the kingdom without the Jews present, there's a real chance that we would have had two or three churches. Right? There's a real chance that these guys would have gone off and created their own church and the Jews would have had their own church and the Samaritans and the Gentiles. So God knows what he's doing. Now he's making it clear that there is one church. And we read this in Ephesians 4 from verse 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one family of all nations, church. The Jews needed to realize that. The Samaritans needed to realize that. The Gentiles needed to realize that. So one man was given the keys to the kingdom. One door into the kingdom. But different keys opened the door at different times. Don't know how that happened exactly. But Peter was the consistent witness, and he always had other witnesses with him. There were always Jewish witnesses that they could they could see and experience that God was treating these other nations exactly the same way. Get that? Okay, I'm going to um, finish off soon. Okay, let's read the first part of chapter 11. I don't have it up there, so you can listen or you can open your Bibles. Acts chapter 11. So what happens here is that the uh, the leaders in 
uh, Judea and well, Jerusalem heard what was going on and they asked Peter to come and explain. Now look, their mindsets haven't changed yet. They probably think Peter's gone crazy here. I mean, really? You know, what's this about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom? Peter, is this what you use the keys for? So we'll read from verse 1 and it's a um, quite an extended passage. I'll read through quickly and just come back and make a few points. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. See the importance of table fellowship? That was the marker that this guy was off the rails. He ate with the Gentiles. Forget that they were converted. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being led down let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from uh, Caesarea, stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me. No doubt he had them with him. And we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in the house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right, that mark of entry into God's kingdom. Verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Wow. You know, when you, when you read in the Bible something like this, that is almost a word-for-word repetition, ad verbatim repeat of what you read in the previous chapter. A couple of things. You know that this is really important. You know, Luke could easily have captured that, oh, you know, Luke was you know, summoned to Jerusalem and he told them what happened. Now, Luke is limited, remember, by the size of a scroll. He is, he is very selective in what he writes. He wants to cram as much into a scroll. Yet he repeats, ad verbatim, almost, what happened. Interesting, and that is Luke's way of saying to us, the readers, and to the early church, that this was a really, really important event. If you didn't get it, read it again. And interestingly, um, we can also learn a lot here from from Peter's character and how he responded to the criticism. You know, you saw how they, they were very antagonistic towards him. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. You went into the house and you actually ate with Gentiles. Now, Peter could have responded in a couple of ways here. He could have reminded them, oh, by the way, who did Jesus give the keys? Rattle, rattle, rattle. You know? huh? I've got a special commission. Yeah, he could have said that. He said, who are you to challenge me? I've got the keys. You know, he could have 
he could have probably thrown away like a, a little religious throwaway line you hear nowadays as well. Ah, oh, God sent me. Or the Holy Spirit led me. Now, he would have meant it if he said it, but he didn't. You know, he explained what happened. And, you know, for us, now I was thinking of myself, oh my goodness, when I get criticized or people don't respond very well, I can easily get my back up. Is it only me? Mm. And I can be drawn into debates and arguments. Peter calmly told the story. He said, this is what happened. And by the way, I've got these six guys who can vouch for me. They were there as well. And they are circumcised believers. Calmly, isn't there a great lesson for us in that? You know, how to counter ridicule, how to counter persecution. Just tell the story. And as a church, we've been looking at First John 1 verse 1 a number of times. And there basically John writes, paraphrasing, he says, All we did when we witnessed about Jesus, we told what we heard, what we saw, and what we experienced. That was their witness. And that's what we need to do, church. Tell our story about the resurrected Jesus. How we heard the resurrected Jesus speak through other people and through the word. What we saw, how we see the resurrected Jesus in the lives of his people. How we see Jesus working through his spirit. And what we experience. You know, how, how Jesus is changing us and has brought us into his kingdom and taken us out of this world of brokenness. That we have experienced that. So Peter had a story to tell. And look at the result it had. These guys went from being critical of Jesus, or sorry, of Peter and praising God. Isn't that a radical mindset? Oh, I pray when I speak to people for that radical mindset change, don't you? You know, that people go from being critical of the gospel, listening to the story, and saying, wow, this is worth praising God for. So there's lots to learn from Peter. Um, you know, as we trace Peter through these uh, chapters of Acts, we can't but help here echoes of Jonah. And I want to end here. Peter at one stage, I think it was in one of the passages, who, who, was, who was Peter's father? What was his name? Jonah. Now, just Luke throws it in there. He doesn't really need to give that detail at that time, but he points out that, you know, Peter's father was Jonah. Oh, you got Jonah in the back of your head. That's interesting. Um, Peter was called from the harbor town of Joppa to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember that Jonah was also asked to preach the gospel to the Ninevites, who, by the way, were also the oppressor, like the centurion representing the Romans. Jonah also ended up in Joppa to hop on a ship to sail to Tarshish as far away. He went directly west, as far away from the Ninevites and running from God, he thought, as possible. Peter was different. It was equally as difficult and as challenging for Peter. These guys have been brought up in the same way, with the same prejudices, the same traditions, the same culture. Same mindset, same worldviews. Peter responded in obedience. He trusted God. And then, you know, even the vision given to Peter had a nautical theme. That word um, translated sheet is actually the sail of a sailing ship. I mean, come on. By now, a good Jew, all the memory, the echoes are there. And this reminds me of somebody. Reminds me of Jonah. Both Peter and Jonah were in a deep sleep while God was busy doing their work in them. And just another side, I'm going to throw this out there, and I don't know for sure if this is the case, but also I find it very interesting that 
as in the story of Jonah, where we read a lot about Jonah going down, going down, going down. You guys remember that? He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He was taken down into the depths of the sea in the, in the big fish. And in that is a, a theme in the story of Jonah about his spiritual decline. He's just going down and down and down. Interestingly, when the angel, you know, when Peter has this vision afterwards, twice in one sentence, Luke just points out, he went down the stairs. God told him, go down the stairs, go down, and he went down and he met them. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. I also think there was a going down by Peter, but it wasn't a spiritual decline. It was him going down from his self-imposed position of status, right? I am superior, which was a typical Jewish mindset. Okay? I am better than the Gentiles. I am better than the, the Samaritans. So God was humbling him. The Jews had exalted themselves and God was bringing them down, down, down. Interesting, isn't it? So just in conclusion, you know, in these accounts involving Peter, there are, or rather there, there are characters that Luke writes into his story that we can relate to. And I, you know, who, who are the main characters in Acts 10? Peter, Cornelius, and God. God's always the main character in the Bible. Okay, but let's just, let's look at the human characters. We have Cornelius, and we have Peter. And last week, as Jason mentioned, Cornelius is, Cornelius challenges us in many ways. And if you're sitting here this morning, and you're a good person, um, you know, you fear God, you do the right things, tick the boxes, go to church, you pray, you might even fast, you might even be generous towards the poor. I think the question for you is, is that what pleases God to the extent of opening the door to his blessings and to his kingdom. Because we can never be good enough to please God. We can never work and earn our way into God's kingdom. Right? And our good deeds are like filthy rags to God. And so if you're in that position here this morning, I encourage you to look at the example of Cornelius and to humbly accept and listen to the messenger that God sends to you. Humbly accept the word of God. Allow yourself to be challenged inside from the inside out um, repent, change your worldview, and be baptized into the life of Christ, and then embrace the fellowship, this family of all nations, that we saw Cornelius doing. There's this contrast between Jonah and Peter. Jonah is the third human character, I believe, important one, sort of lurking in the background, in the shadows of Peter, as I've said. And I think Luke wants us, he draws us into the story and he asks us, are you more like Jonah or are you more like Peter? When God calls you to share the gospel with people you don't like, people you don't think deserve it, people who have hurt you in the past, people who just seem to be so crazy worshipping all sorts of weird things that surely God doesn't love them. When God calls you and me out of our comfort zones to share the gospel with people that like that, how do we respond? Do we run away, as Jonah did? Maybe not physically run away the way he did, but what sort of excuses do we make that, no, surely not God, it can't be right, not me, I'll wait for someone else. Do we respond like that, or do we faithfully say, oh God, makes no sense to me, but I trust you. Your spirit is with me. Your spirit of power, of love, and discernment will be with me. With your spirit, I will go. And that's the lesson throughout the book of Acts. You have this theme of God says go and people go. And Peter is, is a wonderful example of that, someone to imitate. So when God calls us out of our comfort zones, 
When God challenges our traditions, our prejudices, our hatreds, you know, the hatred that we have for people. When God challenges our feelings of superiority or inferiority to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord, how do we respond? Amen. Thank you, church.